I'd like us to continue as we have been going through on Wednesday nights when I've had the opportunity this summer, leading a Jehovah Witness to Christ as we talk. Would you, or maybe um, if someone could click, catch the TV screen right in front of me and turn that on, thank you. I have 10 copies if you so choose to look at it afterwards of what everything I'm going to say, so it's written down um, for the most part. This morning in my devotions, I've been going through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I came to um, an awesome section of verses 1 to 6, which is talking about really the gospel. He says, let your light, let the light shine out of darkness as shown in our hearts. He give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then he gets into the next verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Talking about this treasure being the gospel. This is what we have. We have this treasure, and it's, it's jars of clay, our, our bodies, our, our temples, so to speak. They're, they're crumbling, but we have this life-changing, eternal truth that's, that's within our hearts and souls if we've embraced Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure, and we're just jars of clay. We're falling apart, but this is what we have. And it's an awesome section as Paul then moves forward, and he says, we're afflicted, we're persecuted, all of this. But he says, we have this treasure, and by God's grace, we're going to share it with people. That's really the way I feel when we come to a subject of sharing the gospel, um, namely talking about with Jehovah Witnesses. On um, this past summer, uh, five of us flew out to Phoenix, Arizona, and we went hiking in the Grand Canyon. Then we went to Zion National Park. And this one particular day, I came out of Zion Visitor Center. And as I walked out, I saw this stand, and there were two people at the stand. So I'm thinking, okay, Mormon country, they're going to be Mormons. So I went up to there, and I saw a phrase, judgment of God, and then I saw their literature quickly realized they weren't Mormons in Utah, but they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I said to them, and it was pretty warm, but it was pretty warm on that day. I said, um, um, it's pretty warm to be out here, isn't it? And we're talking about judgment, and they kind of laughed. And I said, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, I referenced them immediately to a couple verses. My first reference, I said, can you look up John 20, 28, and just give me your thoughts on that? And as they looked it up, they didn't want to go there. After they read it, they tried to take me somewhere else. I said, no, may we please stay right here? And, and so we talked about that and, and a few other verses. Um, what I want us to look at tonight is when I last spoke, we talked on two arguments, if I may put it that way, that Jehovah's Witnesses have. I want to pick up the second one, which we didn't address. The first one is that they look at Jesus can't be God, for they believe that Jesus had a beginning. That Jesus had a beginning, thus they conclude he's not God, he was created. But I want us to pick up looking at, beginning with their second argument that I've encountered over the years. Secondly being that Jesus can't be God, for the Bible shows that God, or Jesus, is inferior to God. And we're going to look at some of those verses that address that, that believe that he's inferior. May I just take a sidestep for a moment? We're looking at this with our theme this year. Go to grow. Um, I, I think most Christians that I've talked to, and I really haven't talked to any of you about it, but the few over the years, I think they're intimidated sometimes with Jehovah Witnesses because they feel like they know what they know how to get you, and they have their their road. And so, a lot of Christians aren't hesitant to invite people in and or to try to to share the word. I remember Doreen giving a testimony, which was awesome. Um, a couple months ago, how she had opportunity to share the word with, with Jehovah's Witnesses. So we're just looking at some, some tools 
or no, that's not the right word, some verses that they use. And then if we have time, verses that we use as far as proving the preexistence of Christ. So I want to look at their argument. There are a couple of um, favorite verses that they have. Let's start in John 14, verse 28, if you would turn there. And this group of verses I find over the years, by God's grace, I've, I've been able to talk to uh, lots of different Jehovah's Witnesses and sit down conversations. And this group of verses are the ones that they've always have gone to. John 14, verse 28. And it says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So they make the statement that God says, right, Jesus says that God is greater. So truly he's then, what's the subpoint? He's inferior. Because if somebody's greater, you assume then that person is greater and the next person is inferior. But this is the challenge that I have said to them. Is greater the same as better? And I think that's a question that needs to be answered. Is greater the same as better? Um, how was God the Father at that point, where he was and where Jesus was, how is Jesus referring to God the Father as greater? Um, let's put it, look, at, look at it this way. The President of the United States. The President of the United States, we would say, by virtue of his office, that he is greater than we are. Is that a fair statement? By virtue of his office as a president, he's in a greater position. But we would never say, and I don't, I'm not trying to say something against our, our president, but we would never say that he's better than we are. His office is greater. I mean, he's a president and all that he's in charge of and what we understand. Um, maybe we can look at it this angle. Let's say that, um, let's say that Tom and I were, were business partners, and we put equal equity, finances, and sweat, and we bought a company. I don't know what our company is, Tom, but I'm sure it's a great company. And we have this company, and we're just starting, and, you know, it's a, it's a job that requires that we wear suits and ties. But on one day, one day a week, maybe not always ties, um, but one day a week on Thursdays, let's say, on Thursdays that one of us, we take turns, and I, we scrub the toilets, and we clean the building, and do all of the maintenance outside and inside us, so we take turns. Let's say on this particular day, I'm dressed down. I have my jeans on. So somebody comes in, and they see me. What do they say? Oh, where's the boss? I need to ask them a question. And I smile and say, oh, I think you're looking for Tom. He's right in the back office over there. But I'm equal to him, okay? You see what I'm after? Where Jesus was, and then we think of Philippians 2, 5 to 8, where Jesus was on earth and God the Father, if we could look at the two, here is Jesus in fleshed out mankind clothes, and then here is God the Father being adored in heaven, worshiped by the angels, and his glory is just radiating forth. It's a little question that he's greater. He has a greater position at that point. He is positionally greater versus being humiliated as, as Christ was on earth. In Philippians 2, and you're familiar with these verses. We don't need to turn, but have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, he was in the essence of God, his inner character to which is referring. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He still was equal, but he was equal in the heavens, being worshipped and adored, but he set aside that outward glory and came to earth. 
So that's how I have always answered it over the years. And um, I think that's, that's really what, what Christ is saying. Hebrews 2.9, but we see him for a little lower, who was made a little lower, lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So for a time, Jesus was positionally lower, and God the Father was in a greater position. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 is another one of their verses that they will use to prove um, that Christ, um, that Jesus is inferior. And it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here they're saying, well, it says it right there. <laughs> it's an easy argument to break down, and you probably see it already. But, you know, here is, is the head of Christ is, is God. It says that. Headship is the subject here. So I would say to them, so you're saying that God is superior and Christ is inferior because God is the head, right? And they said, yes. So then are you ready to say that you are superior to your wife as husband and your wife is inferior? Now, you know, when the ladies are present, that, that argument's gone. You know, and I hope it would be for us too. We're not going to say. So, no, the man's not superior, but we, we agree it's teaching headship. There's headship even in the Trinity or the triunity. We don't have to be afraid of that, that principle of headship. It's... It's taught, God the Father sent the Son, Son sent the Holy Spirit. But there is equality. So, principle of headship does not teach inferiority, does not teach that because one is the head, that another one is inferior. It's just as we would use it in the husband and wife illustration. First um, Corinthians 15, 28, if you're there or we'll go there. When all things, and it's a similar principle of headship. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection unto him that God may be all in all. So, wow, we look at this verse and we say, well, it seems to be saying, you know, that it's the same principle, same principle of headship. Yeah, God the Father, in the end, it's talking the end of time, after the millennial kingdom, that Christ will have defeated the enemies, and it even says that he will be subjected to God the Father. And we're okay with that, and the son being subjected. doesn't mean that one is superior. It's the principle of headship. It's, it's equality, um, that a person um, is not superior to another. One's not inferior. So the work of the son finds really ultimate completion in God the Father being glorified. Any questions before we go to chapter 8, verse 6? 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. This is, um, this is a great passage. I mean, I think they all are. But they will use 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6 again to show that God is superior and Christ is inferior. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and from, for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all, um, are all things, and through whom we exist. So it seems to be saying, they say, and this is a quote out of their literature, we have a definitive statement here regarding who is God and who is the Lord. They're saying that only God the Father is God, and only Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is not God. So what would you say if a Jehovah Witness showed you this verse and said, um, 
friend, I'm going to prove to you that, that Jesus Christ is not God, that Jesus Christ is in fear. By this right here, there's one God. There's one God, and that one God is God the Father, and Jesus Christ is the Lord. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's a big, go ahead, yes, Joanne. Okay, so that's a powerful statement there, is, is talking about Christ, connecting it to Colossians, um, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, um, through whom, so he made everything. Okay, pretty powerful verse time, back to Genesis 1. Um, what's a big thing that cults mess up and that we must not allow them to? It's a word that begins with C. We must know what the blank is. Context. Context, context, context. So very important, always, right? So we've got to go to the context, and it's going to be very easy to go to the previous verse or two. So chapter 4, I mean, chapter 8, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through everything exists. Here's, how, here's when their argument is beautiful. It starts to fall apart. The Greek and Romans had a lot of gods, pantheon. Okay, and, and in fact, the mystery of religions had a lot of gods. So there were a boatload of gods. And gods and lords, by the way, are interchangeable. Paul uses them interchangeably in verse 5. But how we see that here in verse, verse 6, we have to ask one question. Is God the Father ever called Lord in the New Testament? And is Jesus Christ ever called God in the New Testament? Yes to both of those. In fact, um, it's embarrassing. God the Father is called Lord hundreds of times. But you want to just peek at a couple real fast? You see where I'm going with this argument? If you're going to say that God the Father is God and Jesus Christ isn't, and that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you've got to finish it. Then that if Jesus Christ is Lord, God the Father is not what? Lord. But yet it's always used in the Bible, the Lord the Lord, God, confess him as Lord, 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 always use. So if God the Father is Lord, then the argument breaks down here that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father is Lord, and we're going to see he's God also. Um, would someone read Matthew eleven twenty five? And would someone else read Matthew twenty two thirty seven and 44? Dennis, would you read Matthew eleven twenty five? And would someone read Matthew 20, Conrad, would you read 22, 37, and 44? Who would chase down Mark 12, 29? Orvin? Okay, Greg, would you do Luke 1, 16? We'll get the ladies to do the next group of verses. Okay, let's go with Matthew eleven twenty five. So I thank you, God the Father, Lord. Same Greek word, kurios. So if you're going to say here from this verse that the Father is God and Jesus Christ isn't, then you've got to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God isn't. Okay, um, great. Or no, who has, um, you have 22. 
Matthew 22, 37. Yeah, here, let me give you a mic. Good idea, man. Matthew 22:37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So again, here's two passages where, where God the Father is called Lord. Um, Greg, do you have yours? You, can you talk real loud? Okay, so turning many to the Lord their God. Who had Mark 12, 29? Orvin, thank you. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, again, that's just five. I, I, I just have written on my sheet dozens more, and I didn't write them all down. Continually in the New Testament. So their argument to prove that Jesus is inferior just doesn't work here. Um, let's look up, ladies, who would read Matthew 1, Matthew 123. You're not a lady, Eric, but go ahead. <laughs> You're a very nice fellow. Would you read Matthew 123, Eric? And uh, I saw one lady's hand up front here, John 1 1. John 1 1. Um, Isaiah 9 6. We're going to skip that and get to Titus 2 13. Would one lady read Titus 2 13, please? Thank you, Chris. Okay, Eric, go with Matthew 123. So we're going to call him Emmanuel, and his name means God with us. Okay, so we're calling, his very name means God with us. Jesus Christ would be called that. Um, John 1 1. Chris, Chris. Okay, calling Jesus Christ, um, the word, calling him God. John 20, 28, Thomas said to, to the Lord, my Lord and my God. But here's the most powerful one, and I plan to, I don't know if we're going to get time to look at it today. It may have to be the next time. Titus 2, 13 is chock full. It is an awesome statement, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, who has that? Chris. That's awesome. Looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Okay? There is a uh, singular article, but there's, a, there's dual titles referring to one. And the pronoun, singular, who and himself. We'll look at it later. But calling Jesus Christ, Lord, great God and Savior. So, as far as this verse goes, it doesn't hold water. God the Father is called Lord, and Jesus Christ is called God. All right, so Bible clearly teaching both. I want us to look at um, next group of verses, the preexistence of Christ. That goes with just a couple of their, their verses that they use in um, proving his, um, that he's inferior, which, which is not true. But if we were to look at the preexistence of Christ, sorry, I forgot to, to click these. What are some verses that prove the pre-existence of Christ. What verses do you know? If Jehovah Witness were, maybe they're working with you, and they were to say to you, hey, you know, Christ had a beginning. Um, I don't believe that Christ, that he, that he always existed. What verses do you know to take them to? Brian. Matthew 
I'm sorry? Colossians 1, excellent. And you'll navigate around the other that they have in there, wouldn't you? Because they put others in parentheses. That's a great passage. Tim. All right, good. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. What other passages? Um, we'll look at them. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Uh, Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to look up this, this, this um, two verses here. When we look at the preexistence of Christ, this is a very important argument um, that, that um, is made. They'll make the statement, again, that, that Jesus Christ didn't always exist, um, that he had a beginning. And so we turn to passages like Isaiah 9, verse 6, if you would turn there with me, please. And I know it's a passage that we know so well, um, but it's still good to turn. Isaiah verse, um, chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This isn't just for Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, this could be also for Jewish friends that we have, that we could show them this verse, because when we tie that in, El Gabor is um, the mighty God, and we tie that in with Jeremiah, which we'll see in a moment. Um, so some may try to say that, um, I've had conversations with JWs, well, that just simply means he is a God-like person, okay? When it's saying the mighty God, that he's, that he's God-like. But Isaiah... <coughs> clearly meant so much more than that. And for us to prove that he meant more than that, what are we going to do? We're not going to jump in verse 6. What are we doing? We're going to go back to the context. Context is always so, so key here, that there's somebody special that's here. It's not just a God-like person. So when we look in verses 2 to 5, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness multiply the nations, rejoice before. You, you look at this whole passage, it's echoing something that we remember hearing in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. In fact, Matthew quotes that. Matthew, written to Jews, very Jewish-oriented, quotes Matthew 4, and he's saying that he's really he's referencing back what was said in Isaiah when he says, so that, we was, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is Matthew 4, might be fulfilled. And he, he speaks the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. So, so Matthew is speaking of a, this person that's come. And he's doing incredible miracles. And he's a powerful individual, Matthew 4 context. And he's quoting back to Isaiah that it has a reference back to when it spoke of Zebulun and Naphtali. That would be Galilee. Those people that sat in darkness, one day the light would come to you. And that light would be Jesus Christ. So it has a powerful context. One would come to an area that was dark, but he would change. He would be life-changing. And then we move into verse 3. It talks about joy. And that's a deep word. And that word joy is tied in when you look at other places like when Gideon defeated the Midianites. I mean, it's talking about an enemy is defeated, a miracle has happened, and there is great joy. So there would be great joy at his coming. It wouldn't just be, be because, you know, we're happy two months ago Isaac came into the family. Or I'm happy to pick him up today. And it's deeper than that. 
and it would be joy of deliverance, joy of victory. Then you step into that being the context, back then into verse, verse 6, um, the mighty God. Let's come back to El, let me come back to Everlasting Father in a moment, but let me, let me finish with this. Isaiah 9, 6, the mighty God. If you can find this phrase, the mighty God, used of anywhere else of God, then you're going to have a home run. Let me, let me put it differently. It's clearly referring to Jesus Christ. They may try to reduce it and say it's a God-like person. But what if you were to find God described in the same words as mighty God, Al Gabor? What would you then have? You follow me? If they're saying this just means he's a godly person. But if you find the same Hebrew words used to describe God, you now have something powerful. What would you have? A description of God himself. Let's go to Jeremiah 32, 18, but keep your finger in Isaiah 9, 6, please. And then the argument's about to go really cool, if, if I may say it that way. Jeremiah 32, 18. And can I pause for a moment? You know, I say argument. We're not to win. We're not to win a battle. I've confessed to you. I think the last time that I've had a couple conversations, and I, I had the wrong heart. I got all fired up, and I was like in a debate team about to win, and I forgot that I was dealing with a soul, that I ought to be, I should have been, instead of stepping out, when I can remember being in Paul Say's apartment, and these two father-daughter team were trapped in, by just the power of the Word of God, and uh, you know, I said, hey, you want me to help you look up in your material? I know that would bother them. That was off. That wasn't right. You know, and then getting in the other room with Paul say as they're looking up and, you know, going all excited. We should have been on our knees crying to God. God, break their hearts. You know, it was a wrong approach back then. And God would change my heart over the years then. You know, that, that we're, we're after people's souls. We're not after some silly debate. We don't want to win. So when I say argument, I don't mean that we're arguing with them. Um, apologetics is what I meant to give a defense of the faith. But with, with a broken heart, with a heart that aches for souls because they need Jesus Christ. You know, may we, pray, may we pray, God, bring people in my path. Bring people, whether they're Jehovah's Witnesses or people that don't know Christ, and we just want to share the word with them because Jesus still is in the saving business. And we just want to see people saved. We want to see people that maybe JW background, you know, and I, I know, Janae, you were, you know, but people that, you know, are, are set free from it and that God could, could use you. Um, um, Jeremiah 32, verse 18. Describing God, Jeremiah just crying out to God. He says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God. So he speaks to, to, to God the Father, and he's describing him as mighty God. Now that's, that's important that we now have stepped out of Jesus being called mighty God, and God, the Father, mighty God, same Hebrew word, and it's El Gabor. El is Elohim. Gabor means mighty. So El Gabor. Christ is called El Gabor in Isaiah 9, 6, and God is called El Gabor in Jeremiah 32, 18. Now here's where the argument, I think, has to go, or may I say discussion. You ready? What question do we need to ask them when, when um, they have said mighty God is referring to um, 
to, to, to a God-like person, and we've talked about what would be a good path to go. How many what? That's right. How many mighty gods do you have? In fact, how many gods do you have? You're right there. Um, let's flip back to Isaiah. Isaiah gives an awesome defense of the faith of who God is. And I, we just love Isaiah 43 and all of the, all of the truth in this, this, these chapters. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Um, these, these are great verses actually with Mormons. Um, but it works with Jehovah's Witnesses. It works with anybody that denies it, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. So it's clearly said there is no other God besides me. Again, Mormonism. The goal of Mormonism is to marry a, in, a, in a Mormon temple. And if you get married in a Mormon temple then for you to, you'll be married forever and you'll spin off children um, forever and they will then get their own planet. That's Mormonism, okay? And they'll become a god. I forgot that small part. Become gods. But the Bible says there's only but one god. Um, there's a whole bunch in Isaiah. Let's just look at one more. Chapter 44, verse 6 and verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no god. Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There is none. There is none else besides me. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, verse 6, 45, verse 21, and, and on it goes. Um, we only have one God. So when Jesus Christ is called the mighty God, and God is, and Jeremiah is called the mighty God, there is oneness. I and my Father are one. It just becomes a, a beautiful, beautiful understanding. Remember when we looked in Genesis, um, man and woman, when, I'm sorry, let me start with Deuteronomy 6, Hero is your Lord our God is one, and it was that word, echad, E-C-H-A-D, and we reference how there's oneness, but man and wife, they become one flesh. It's that same word, but there are two, but there's one. Um, looking at it in Ezra 6, um, the congregation of Israel is called one congregation, but there are many parts. Um, in Numbers 13, when they came back and brought a, one cluster of grapes, there's one cluster but many parts. You see, there's one God, but, but there are different parts. There's a oneness. I mean, our, our theology just continues to be seen in every page that we turn in the Word of God. Um, if we're back in Isaiah 9, verse 6, if I could just... Um, wrap up from that verse, and we're almost done, lost out of time here, unfortunately. Um, Isaiah 9, verse 6, the everlasting Father. That Christ is described as the mighty God, but he's also described as the everlasting Father. Looking at the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, um, is God in his essence, that his attributes, that he's eternal. His attributes that he, that he had no beginning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, focusing on the eternality of the second member of the Godhead. Um, and, and some believe that everlasting fathers really is an idiom that's used to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, um, not necessarily his relationship um, to other members of the, tr of, of the Trinity. He's looking at, at a time aspect here, that he's eternal. So again, it's, a, it's an awesome, awesome statement.
And we're not going to look at, uh, we have Micah 5.2, John 1.15, John 8.59, Hebrews 13.8. I I would like to just wrap up with Revelation 1.8. Were we able to get get that video, buddy? Yes, no? Not sure. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Would you turn there, please? We'll we'll close with um, this verse. Again, looking at the preexistence of Christ, that he always existed. Revelation 1.8 is, is powerful. Um, I can remember after being in Florida and this uh, dear elderly lady in whose home I stayed, I went to um, Coral Ridge for evangelism explosion training and um, another guy and I stayed in this lady's home and she just poured out her heart how her son, I remember his name was Al. They lived on Long Island about 10 miles away, was a Jehovah Witness. And uh, I said, well, let's just pray for, for his salvation. And I said, I, I'll, I'll be glad to meet with him. And I met with him a few times, never saw him come to know Christ. But I can remember camping in Revelation 1-8 with him. And he's just arguing that Revelation 1-8 is talking of God, not Jesus Christ. But let me share with you my, my discussion with him. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. See, they, they're struggling Jehovah's Witnesses will dig in their heels that it's not referring to Christ because Christ can't be the Almighty. Okay? They were pro- that, that s- their, their theology stumbles with that. Jesus Christ just can't be the Almighty. God's the Almighty. Of course, Jeremiah 32 and Isaiah 9 6 already, already destroy that. So how do, we, how do we show, how do we answer, who is the speaker in Revelation 1 verse 8? Who is the, who is the spokesman? Who's speaking here? Um, here's clearly how it's able to be proven that it's Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. In Greek, that is ego, a me. It's literally translated, I, I am. I am is a title for Jesus Christ. Um, It's seen throughout the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door. John 10, I am the good shepherd. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. 14.6, the the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Christ continually uses ego and me, ego and me, ego and me, ego and me, ego and me. So now it's camping on here, and and he's speaking, I am the Alpha and Omega. So number one, it's always a designation of Jesus Christ. Okay, number two, who's verses one to seven talking about? Um, what's What's the context? Um, revelation of Jesus Christ given to him. Um, jump down to verse, even verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, to him who lives, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to God forever. Um, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Those who have pierced in all tribes will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega. All of a sudden it's going to switch. Jesus Christ is the context. Christ, 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 slam the brakes on. He gets out of the speeding car and lets the Father get in and take it. No, it's not that. The context flows. Christ is the subject continually. Um, further, it's, it's strengthened by comparing verses 17 and 18. How is, is our argument that Christ, or our discussion, that Christ is the one spoken of in verse um, 8, strengthened by looking at verses 17 and 18? Look at verse 17 and 18. I am the Alpha and Omega, 
and then we see 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. How can we use those verses to prove that verse 8 is speaking of Christ? What's Alpha and Omega? Alpha is, may I say, A in the alphabet, and if you please, Omega would be our Z. First and last. That's what it's saying there. But here I think is, the, if I may say, the strongest case to be made. Um, look at the word coming in verse 7, and look at the word coming in verse 8. They're both the same root, Urkamai. Christ is coming, Urkamai, in verse 7, verse 8. God, or Christ is coming, in verse 8, Urkamai. You'll never find a place in the Bible unless you were to say this is God, where, where God is coming, God the Father. It's always Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the first and last. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega. So where do, what does all of this mean? All of this theology or Christology, if you please, or looking at who Christ is. So, in a sense, so what? You know what the so what is? God causes us to know your truth better, causes us to be defenders of your word, causes us to be men and women that could take it to even Jehovah's Witnesses because we know we have the truth because God is still in the business of saving people. God is in the business of changing lives, even Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't have to be, even though we're on the doorstep of the, the Watchtower organization out of New York City, uh, we have God's truth. We have God's word, the light of the gospel. May we take that. Do you have that song, Alan? Thanks. those who attempt to restrict it, Jesus has a word, whoever.
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the truth of that song, but the truth of the word of God that Jesus saves. Thank you, Father, for the beggars that reach out to you, whether they come from a Baptist, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Muslim background, that, Father, they find the living bread, that they are made alive spiritually, and they put their faith and trust in Christ. God, we love you and we thank you. God, may we see you use our humble, feeble attempts to bring you glory with many people trusting in Christ. I pray in Christ's name, amen.